was, what's the cue that gets you guys to talk, stop talking to each other, right? Because like usually I walk up and then people stop, but I've realized, because I've watched, it's not me coming on stage that makes everybody sit down and stop talking, it's when the monitor comes out. That's what the trigger is to have you guys sit. Um, but man, thanks for coming. I uh, loved that last line, last part about we'll praise your name forever. Uh, that was encouraging to me. So thank you for worshiping with me. Thank you for helping me remember what our hope is um, and what we are pressing on towards and clinging to that one day we will not be in this cinder block auditorium worshiping together. One day we will be somewhere where Jesus is worshiping him face to face. And that is going to be uh, man, a day for which there are no words. Um, and I'm eager, and I look forward to that day. But I'm grateful for this day, and grateful for us to continue to have moments with Jesus together as a community to fuel our faith and to strengthen our faith and to continue to give us steps and foundations to step upon to help us cling to our hope and strengthen our hope. And so that's what we're going to do together. I'd encourage you, if you haven't already, to grab or jump on our website or our app or wherever it is you get information from us or grab one of the uh, hard copy uh, pieces of paper outside the door that tells you the schedule for the rest of the month. If you come at this time next week, you will be right where you need to be. If the second service comes at their normal time, they will be nobody here but themselves. Because for the next couple of weeks, we're doing one service information on there about child care. We have two Christmas Eve services coming up, and there's the times of those, two identical services, just a great time to gather on that evening together. So a lot going on that we're excited about, and we're excited about what God has for us this morning. So I will pray, and then we will jump into his text and his word. Father, thank you. Just that incredible reminder that we ended our time of worshiping you through song with that one day we're going to praise your name forever in your presence. Uh, And will you help us through the Spirit see that as our hope, and that our hope is not in how much we can get in this world or how popular we are or how comfortable we are or how pain-free we are. Our ultimate hope is being with you forever. And for many of us and for all of us, we have the opportunity to have that be our hope through what Jesus did and what his work was begun when he was incarnated in human flesh, which we remember this time of year. And so, Father, as we, as we kind of continue to press into this series, Father, in the true story of what happened at this time of year, will your spirit work to us, with us and in us? Will you help us to hear what it is that you have sovereignly brought us all into the room to hear this morning? And will you receive the glory and the honor? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're like me uh, right now, it's been a while now that you've been listening to some Christmas carols. Anybody here has, has anybody here like just not listened to any Christmas carol yet? Okay, good. I breached my own rule. I had a hard and fast policy that there is no Christmas music in the Smith house most years until the final Thanksgiving dish has been washed. This year, I think it was like we were handing out Halloween candy listening to Christmas carols. Uh, But you've probably begun to watch some Christmas movie, listen to some Christmas carols, so I thought it would be interesting to give us a little bit of information about some of those things. Here it is, some facts that you can take to the bank, maybe, because it was on the internet, so trust it. All right, but this seems legit. Somehow Verizon and Google have gotten together. And Verizon and Google uh, <clears throat> kind of did a survey, did some research, and they have telled, told us the most commonly played Christmas song in Connecticut. Anybody want to guess? What? What? Yeah. Yeah. Wow! Anybody know my sermon points? I'm like, yes! According to Verizon Wireless and Google, uh, the most commonly played Christmas song in Connecticut is All I Want for Christmas is You, right? Looks Mariah Carey song. Now, here is, that was it. That's all the blessing you get of me singing. I hope you paid attention to that. All right, now, according to uh, Spotify, Okay, some of you have Spotify, you stream it, that's how I listen to all of my music. According to Spotify, what do you think the most streamed Christmas carol ever is? Or song? Mariah Carey. 
It's true. Connecticut is just such a trendsetter, right? We're just so hip and we're so popular. All right. A survey was done of a couple thousand adults in America, the United States, and according to those couple thousand adults, what do you think they all said was the most popular Christmas movie uh, that they enjoy? Well, no. The most popular Christmas movie, according to the survey, was Home Alone, the iconic Christmas movie that will bring tears to your eyes. Is anything more nostalgic than Joe Pesci running around trying to murder a kid, right? If that doesn't scream Christmas, I don't know what is. All right, and last survey question, and then I'll do most of the talking from this point forward. Think about it. In the history of the world, that's a long history, what do you think the most best-selling Christmas story ever has been? The Bible. Well, that's usually a very good answer, but it's not this answer. The best-selling Christmas toy in the history of the world ever are those beloved Cabbage Patch dolls. It's, that's what it says. And if you have a Cabbage Patch doll, you should put it on eBay now and put 10% in the offering box, and it'll be just a lovely Christmas for all of us, right? Cabbage Patch dolls, best-selling Christmas toy in the history of the world. Mariah Carey apparently is the most popular uh, part of the Christmas music rotation that we listen to. Home Alone is what we're watching, apparently, according to a couple thousand adults. And the Cabbage Patch doll is the most popular, most frequent, most common toy that has ever been purchased from the beloved Toys R Us or whatever your retailer is uh, that showed up on the Christmas trees. But it kind of raises the question, because we're not here to to think about those things, but what, who, what, who, what is the most, man, kind of the most common characters in the Christmas story? If you were to kind of do a survey of the most of this character or characters who showed up in the Christmas story, uh, the, the most number of characters who showed up in the Christmas story most uh, commonly are angels, right? Angels, if you tally the amount of angels that show up in the Christmas story compared to the other characters of the Christmas story, the angels seize the day, right? And so this morning, what we're going to do is as we're continuing our series in Do You See What I See? We're going to think about what do the characters, the, the largest number of characters in the Christmas story, the historical true Christmas story, what is it that they saw, Right? What is it that they observed when they came on the scene and there were different things and different actions? What was their perspective? What was their insight? What were they seeing? And we're continuing this, right? If it's your first Sunday here, we're about through you. This will be a third week in our Christmas series. Do you see what I see? We'll be finalizing and wrapping it down on the 26th. And we've already seen the perspectives of a few different people. We've seen the perspectives of Elizabeth, this senior citizen in the beginning of the story. And last week we saw the perspective of Herod and what they saw and their insights. Along the way, we've kind of had two practical applications and takeaways for us as a body, and I don't know if you've had a chance to do any of those, but one of the first practical applications is we had these cards available, right? A list of God's promises, and when we talked about what Elizabeth saw, one of the things she saw was hope based on God's promise, and we gave you and me an opportunity throughout that week to read over these and to cling to one of these and to meditate on one of these. I don't know if that's something that you had the opportunity to do. Last week, the takeaway, the application was, hey, this is about the worship of Jesus, right? We ended saying that's what those astrologers came to do, and the challenge was find one day and one way on that one day to purposefully set aside some moments to worship Jesus. Two practical takeaways thus far, and if you haven't gotten a chance to avail yourself of those, I'd encourage you to, man, grab some of the promises Think about Jesus, worship him. That's some of the practical things we've seen from what other people have seen so far in the story. And so today we're going to think about what angels saw. And before we do that, let's just think about angels in general. Angels in general, according to theologians, that was a very long way of saying theologians. I got stuck on, am I going to say theology or theologians? I'm going to say theologians. According to theologians, angelology is one of the most challenging kind of bodies of systematic theology to, to get around because you have to, it's just challenging. And there's different thoughts on what angels are and what they're not. But, but as you pull all that together based on Scripture, here's a few things that we see about angels. Angels are spiritual beings that God created. 
They are higher and different than humans, but they're not divine. So they don't have the same essence as God, but they're not humans. They're kind of this middle tier. A lot of people think, right, there's this common uh, thought out there that when we die, when humans die, we all become angels. That is not true. Humans are humans, God is God, and angels are angels, and they never flip what they are, right? Humans will always be a human. God will always be God, and an angel will always be an angel. There are angels that rebelled, and so there's this reality that angels have free will like we do. We can choose to obey. We can choose to disobey. In the history of God, there was a moment when a bunch of angels didn't want to obey, and they didn't want to worship him, and in their free will, they chose to fight against him. And that category of fallen angels are what you see throughout Scripture that are referred to as demons. There are a huge number of angels. We don't have the exact number, but when you look at the words that describe the amounts of angels that show up on the scene, I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, of angels. What do angels do? If these are some realities, angels kind of have four big roles that we see throughout Scripture. They continually praise and worship God. Angels continually praise and worship God, and they never run out of things about which to praise Him. They never tire of worshiping God. Constantly, there are angels in the presence of God that are just proclaiming to Him, you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. Angels do what God tells them to do. So angels sometimes are involved in executing punishment. Throughout the Old Testament, a lot, you'll see that when God punishes a group of people, that the angels are the ones that are involved in doing that. Angels provide care to different people in the Bible. At different moments, there's big-name Bible people who go through a period of just physical weariness or depression or discouragement or burnout. And in some of those unique moments, it's the angels that come and physically provide the care and the rest and the nourishment for those angels. The biggest thing we see angels doing, besides the worship of God probably, is that they're the ones that communicate God's messages to humans. That there are unique moments in our world when our natural world is invaded by the supernatural. There are moments when our natural box in which you and I live, right, is invaded by the supernatural and an angel comes and appears physically to a human being and communicates a message to that human being. That's what we see the angels doing in the Christmas story. As we think about what did the angels see, they saw various things because they were engaged with conversations with different people, and they were engaged in bringing messages to other characters in the Christmas story. So what was the first appearance of an angel? What was the first time they showed up on the scene? Well, we talked about one of these characters before. We talked about Elizabeth, our first wife, but the first time an angel appeared was to Elizabeth's uh, husband, a guy named Zechariah. And in some of the texts that we looked at when we were talking about Elizabeth, we read these things about that appearance. So Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, the first appearance of an angel, the first message in the Christmas story that an angel brought. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife and the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. We know all about Elizabeth because we spent 46 minutes together talking about Elizabeth two weeks ago. But let's think about Zechariah. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Zechariah is going to the temple. Zechariah, the temple is in Jerusalem. It's in the big city. He goes in here. It's a very special moment in his career of a priest. He would never have this moment again. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, Zechariah is on his job, right? He's doing what he's supposed to do. All of a sudden, blah, 
<clears throat> an angel shows up. And in this moment, how did Zechariah respond to that? Well, we see that right in the next verse, verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. The angel shows up. The angel sees this guy in front of him who's scared. He tells him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. The angel had knowledge that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for something, that they had a longing for something, that they something they wanted. And God gave this angel this message to deliver them that that was going to be given to him. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah gets this message that his prayers have been answered, right, that what he's been longing for. How does Zechariah respond to this? What does Zechariah do in this moment? What does the angel observe about how Zechariah responded? Here's what Zechariah said. Verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? Now, we know later on from what the angel is about to tell him, Zechariah is not asking legitimate questions. In another story that we're not going to fully read, Mary's going to ask an angel question, but she's asking legitimate questions. She's like, okay, I want to know more. What he's doing here, he's like, what, seriously? There is no way, right? His tone is not, I want to know, because we're going to see what the angel says he's doing. His tone is doubt. His tone is, I don't trust it. I don't believe it. It can't be true. He, he continues, Zechariah said, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. It's not possible. It can't happen. You're mistaken. You hit your head on a cloud on the way coming to see me, angel. Right? You got the wrong message. How does the angel respond to this man that he sees in front of him who has been praying for something and longing for something, who doesn't believe, who has doubt? Right? Here's what the angel says. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. A couple of different phrases for us to grab hold of. First is this response is, Zachariah, you need to pipe down, bro, because I'm Gabriel. Gabriel is one of two named angels in the entire Bible. The other named angel is Michael. So there's two angels that we know the name of, Gabriel and Michael. Thousands of angels. We have no idea who they are. Michael typically brings bad news. If you get in your car and there's an angel there saying, my name's Michael, I don't know what to tell you. If you get in your car and there's an angel there named Gabriel, it's like, yes, this is going to be great, right? Michael, bad news. Gabriel, good news. That's the pattern that we see. We see Gabriel, if you're interested in reading, scribble down Daniel chapter 8 and 9. You'll see Gabriel having some conversations, and we're going to see him in a couple of chapters later. Gabriel is God's primary messenger. And Gabriel is the one who communicates some of the biggest messages in the history of our story and what God does in this moment. And Gabriel's here to deliver this. Gabriel sees this man in front of him who doesn't believe his words. That's what the angel is seeing as Zachariah's responding, right? Zachariah's initial fear at seeing the angels turned to unbelief. Instead of being grateful, like, man, I've yearned for this for decades, it turns to skepticism. He responds with doubt and responds with distrust. In this first moment that an angel interacted with someone in the Christmas story to bring this message, the first thing that the angel saw through this interaction, he saw a man with longings, but he also saw a man with doubt. And he offered to that man a promise from God. The angel saw a man with longing, but also a man with doubt. 
And he offered to that man a promise from God. Just quick thought, just quick application. Maybe some of you did do these promises. Maybe some of you have clung to one of them for something that's been going on in your life. Maybe some of you <clears throat> have been clinging to a different promise of God for a week, for a month, for a year, for a decade. And remember when we talked in the first week, we're not talking about clinging to the things that we want God to give to us or hope God to give to us, right? We're not making a contract with God that he didn't make with us. We're talking about those things that in his word God has unequivocally promised to do, a promise. And maybe some of you have been holding on to a promise and it hasn't come true yet. And I would just encourage you, don't stop trusting. Don't allow the doubt to overcome and trump your willingness to keep clinging to that promise. Don't give up on God. He hasn't given up on you, and he hasn't given up for you. And don't lose hope, because God is a promise-keeping God. Zechariah didn't believe it. Zechariah doubted, wasn't willing to trust, and that's kind of the first encounter in the story. Do we see Gabriel again in the Christmas story? We do, because I've already told you that. And later on, here's the second time that Gabriel rolls in the scene. Gabriel has been hanging out in Jerusalem, the big city, the center of everything, and now his next time he's going to show up is in a podunk, no name. If you weren't from there, you wouldn't even know where it was, town. And this is the next moment in the story that Gabriel shows up to the next person. And what does he see when he shows up to this person? Luke 1 still moving into verse 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, right? Again, <clears throat> no name town, wouldn't even know where it was. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And this is really interesting. When Gabriel is about to say something to Mary, he knows something about her, so therefore he sees something in her, right? And he, his greeting to her is different than most of the greetings that you would see. Verse 28, he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. What Gabriel's doing is he knows that Mary has been chosen by God with this special privilege, that God has shown this unique grace to Mary to let her be involved in the story of redemption. And that there's a purpose and a calling for Mary that is so unique. And so he front-ends that, right? When he comes to her, he knows all that and he sees all that in her. And so the greeting tees that up. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. Mary is a middle schooler who is like doing her homework or making a TikTok video, okay? And all of a sudden, this angel shows up. And she's like, okay, I what is going on? And he uses this special greeting, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. And she's like, okay, what? why is he saying that? Why is he, why, what's going on? And so look at how she responds to this. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what type of greeting this might be. Mary is not going to be like Zachariah. Zachariah doubts. Mary has some similar conversations, but at the end of the story, we see that Mary has always acted out of faith, whereas Zachariah always acted doubt. When Mary says it's troubled and tried to discern what this means, troubled means like perplexed, confused. I don't understand, right, what's going on. And so what Gabriel is then going to do is he's going to give to Mary some more information. He's going to give her some details to understand why he started by calling her favored. He's giving her some details about what her special privilege and honor is supposed to be. And so here's what he unpacks about it in verses 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. These phrases like 
Jesus, called the Son of the Most High, throne of his father David, reign over the house of Jacob, kingdom with no end. The minute the angel started saying that, Mary was a good Jewish girl. And she would have known what culturally and religiously the significance of all of those terms were. And all of those terms were linked to the fact of the deliverer who was going to come to make it all right. And what she would have realized in that moment is, whoa, whoa. What Gabriel was telling her in that moment is, Mary, here's the reason I started this conversation by calling you favored one, because you, Mary, your purpose, your opportunity, your calling is you are going to be the mom of the Messiah, of the leader who comes to rescue his people. You are going to be his mom. There's some more conversations about the logistics of that. And then Gabriel rolls out of town. He goes back to the presence of God, having delivered this message in verse 38. We see that. Uh, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In this second interaction in the Christian story, what did the angel see? He's already seen something in a senior citizen. What does he see in a middle schooler? Here's what he sees. He sees a young girl with incredible calling and some confusion, and he offers to her purpose. He sees a young girl with an incredible, incredible calling mixed with some confusion, and he offers to her purpose. And there's one more group to whom some angels and an angel appears in the Christmas story. Anybody know who that other group would be? Uh, It was the shepherds, right? The next time we see angels appearing, the next big category in the story are this group of shepherds. Now we've gone from a senior citizen to a middle school girl. The next scene where there's this conversation where the angels are going to see some is in a field outside a city with some blue-collar workers work in the night shift. They got their Stanley thing, or, well, you know, not Stanley. They probably were saved up some Amazon gift cards. They got them Yeti coolers, right? They got a Yeti tumbler filled with some hot coffee. They're working the night shift, blue collar guys. And in and, and our culture, man, sometimes people, man there's, all, man, there's amazing, gifted, incredible blue co- people who do blue collar jobs who are esteemed and have value and significance, right? In that culture, if you did a blue-collar job, there was none of that associated with that. And so this is the next interaction, and we flip over to chapter 2, next page in your Bible, next scroll on your device, next slide on the screen, and it says this. And in the same region, verse 8 of chapter 2, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, this angel of the Lord... It's not named. Could it be Gabriel? I mean, it seems pretty reasonable, but is it definitely Gabriel? We don't know. But he shows up right on the scene, and these shepherds, in response, were filled with great fear, right? Literally, it's like they feared a great fear. They phobiaed a great phobia in the Greek. What Luke is trying to say is, man, these guys were freaking out, right? Like, more scared than they'd ever been in their entire lives. They were scared. The angel shows up. He sees this fear in these people's hearts and minds. And to them, this scared group of guys, what does this angel say? And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you, born this day in the city of David, there is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What the angel's doing is he's letting these scared shepherds know, guys, here's some news I have for you, right? That there is a Savior who has come. And then the story continues, and suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, and there's discussion is this, are they singing? A lot of people think that this is actually something that they may be singing. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is praised. They're praising God and saying. Now, here's what's really interesting. In that culture, when there was a baby born somewhere in a house, local musicians 
would congregate there, and they would, like, sing some praises to celebrate his birth. So, like, if my wife and I had a baby, okay, <laughs> Emmanuel would show up at St. Vincent's Hospital, and would have his guitar, and he would sing a song about the baby that Peter has, right? I'm thinking like Nacho Libre songs or something right now. But in this culture, musicians would show up to celebrate the birth of a child. What a lot of scholars think is like, man, you know what? God has sent a group of musicians to show up to celebrate the birth of his child. And there's this heavenly host What this is saying is, okay, of all the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels that show up, a small portion of that entourage shows up on the scene to be engaged of it. And these angels explain the benefit of Jesus' birth. The angels say there's a Savior who comes, but there's something that that Savior is going to do. There's a Savior who comes, but there's something that that Savior is going to do. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What he's saying, what these names are saying is, hey, one of the things that this Savior is going to bring with him, one of the things that the Savior is going to make available to everyone who wants to engage in it is peace is peace. In this third interaction, the angels saw scared people, and they offered to them the good news of peace through a Savior. The angels saw scared people and offered to them good news of peace through a Savior. Three interactions, three scenes in the Christmas story, three different things the angels saw. The first thing they saw was they saw longing and doubt. Then they saw confusion and calling, And then they saw fear. And to the person who had the longing and doubt, the angels offered a promise. To that middle schooler who had confusion and calling, the angels offered purpose. And to those shepherds who responded, the angels saw fear. The angels offered to them the good news of peace. Promise, purpose, peace. All connected with a Savior. Promise, purpose, and peace, all connected with, all flowing from, all available because of a Savior. Let's let's press into that thought a little bit further. Let's press into the thought of promise, purpose, peace, all available through a Savior. And, And here's the deal. Our hope of peace... For every single person in the room today, every single person in the room today, no matter what you believe coming in here, there are all of us who in our hearts want peace. You may not phrase it like this, but you don't want things to be unsettled. You don't want things to be up in the air. You don't want things to be bad. You don't want things to be hard. You don't want things to be hurtful. You want things to be good. All of us, right, want peace. And our hope of peace is linked with the reality of a Savior. Our hope of peace is linked with the reality of the Savior. We can have peace with God right now because there is a Savior. That's one of the types of peace that's offered in that phrase, peace on earth. Right? It's the idea of peace with God available because we have a Savior. And do you know why we have a Savior? Do you know why you have a Savior? you know why I have a Savior? Because we all need to be saved. We have a Savior because every single one of us in the room at some point in our life needed to be saved, and we cannot save ourselves. I told the story before of, I think it was a while ago. Man, I know it was a while ago because my kids were a lot younger. It was a little fresher then. But we went up to New Hampshire. It was one of the times we got away. And as a family, we went to some caves up in New Hampshire. I don't remember. I think maybe the polar caves. I don't know. But you'd go and uh, you would crawl, you'd, you'd pay a ridiculous amount of money. I'm like, man, can't I just find a concrete like tunnel for my kids to go? But you would go and you would crawl through these caves, right? Like you get underground, you did big crawl. Well, it was, I guess 
guess it was okay. I was a little freaked out the whole time. Um, so my whole family went, right? I got four kids, my wife and myself. We, we, we started going through the caves. We got through a bunch of them. Then you come up to the orange squeeze, okay? The orange squeeze, as the name implies, it is a squeeze. And so you got to the orange squeeze, and there's this, this, this ranger there to make sure that your kids are the right size, and it's just scary. You get to follow the path. So I'm like, okay, great. Let's do the orange squeeze. Let's get out of here. Let's find a hot dog and a cup of coffee and go home. So we, we go through it. I don't remember the exact order, but we all pop out of the cave. If you've seen Home Alone, you know that there's a miscounting problem in the beginning of the movie. I do not like to have miscounting problems. So we, I, I get out of the cave. My wife gets out of the cave. Different kids have come out or are coming out. So then we're kind of through the orange squeeze, and we all huddle together. And I'm like, okay, I got a wife and four kids and me. So I'm here. My wife's there. There's one kid, there's two kids, there's three kids, where's the fourth kid? I don't remember, maybe this time we didn't even have a fourth kid, right? I think maybe we only had three, I don't know. But I'm supposed to have four total now. When I counted on that day, I am one kid short. There's one kid who has not yet come out of the orange squeeze. And I'm like, I mean, I could go home, right? Might help my college planning down the road, but that sounds like a really bad kid, parent to leave your kid there. So I talked to the ranger. I'm like, sir, you know, I don't know where my kid is. Like, we went to, and I'm sure he was a very nice guy, but it was not on his to-do list to help a family who's starting to get a little freaked out now, right? Because now it's been a few minutes, and now my kid hasn't come out. My wife's starting to get worried. The brothers and sisters are getting worried, and he's like, well, I guess you got to go back in and find her. I'm like, yeah, thanks, buddy. Like, I didn't realize. I'm thinking, don't you have like a, isn't this like Disney World where there's a secret patch for you to go in? So I got it. Now, he's nice. He clears it. Um, and it's not, now. you know, it's funny telling you now, but it's starting to get less funny because I'm thinking, where's my kid? Where's my kid? So I get back in the orange squeeze, and the child that we couldn't find um, was very petite, right? Very, like, tiny little person. And so what this tiny little person had done is there was the main part of the cave part you were supposed to crawl along. But then as an offshoot of that, there was this little pathway up into some, I mean, it's dark. There's this little pathway up into some rocks and this little tunnel that ends. And what she did, because she was small enough, is she got confused. And instead of going on the little pathway that you're supposed to go on, the main way, she, she went off this little rabbit trail and she got herself wedged up in this cave in some rocks. She was small enough to go up there. Nobody else naturally would try to go up there. I don't know where she is yet. And, and I'm crawling through this cave and I'm like, child, child, I'm saying her name, but names have been changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> I'm calling her name. And then all of a sudden I hear, Dad! Dad! This scared, tiny voice. Like, where are you? I mean, she's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, get out! She's like, I can't. I'm stuck. So I said, well, keep calling, and I'll come to where you are. So I crawled. And I crawled, and I followed the sound of my child who was stuck and who was lost and who couldn't do anything for themselves, and I finally stumbled around off the thing, and I found a foot. And I gently started to say, babe, I got you. Let, let me pull you out, and let's get out of here, and let's go home. She couldn't free herself. She couldn't rescue herself. She couldn't save herself. She needed somebody to come to where she was to do it for her. And the story of the scripture and the story of my life and the story of your life is that at some point in your story, you were trapped and you were stuck. And what the Bible tells us is the place that we were stuck is not the orange squeeze in New Hampshire, it's in sin. Because we all chose to do something that God didn't want us to do. We committed sin. We committed evil. We rebelled against God. And for some of us, you know what that rebellion is? It's your pride that makes you think you actually aren't that person. And we couldn't rescue ourselves. And we were in a place not just stuck in a cave. We were in a place where God said, I have to punish that person unless this situation changes. 
unless we become saved, it's such a cheesy evangelical Christian word, I hate even saying it. But the text tells us we have a Savior, and you know what saviors do? They save us. And unless we are saved from that sin, where we're wedged in is wrath from God. And we can't save ourselves. And so God came down in the incarnated form of Jesus to come to where you were, to grab you, to pull you, and to save you. Being saved and having peace with God is something that needs to be done for us. It is not something that can be done by us. You know why I know that? Because if you could save yourself, guess what you wouldn't need? You wouldn't need a Savior. If you could save yourself, the angels wouldn't have used words like, hey, there's peace because there's a Savior. The angels would have said, hey, good news. You try harder, you're going to be good. There ain't no thing about try harder. There's like, hey, you can have peace because you have a Savior. If we could save ourselves, we wouldn't need a savior, but the great news is we have one. And so the question is this, right? For all of us this Christmas season, have you ever trusted Jesus as your savior? Not in a cheesy, evangelical, cliche way, but have you ever said, man, I do believe that I'm trapped in my sin? And I do believe that unless that's fixed, I'm going to face punishment, which is eternal separation from God, and I can't fix that. And so in humility, I will allow Jesus to pull me out of my sin. I will have faith that he was punished in my place and instead of me so that I will never have to be punished. And in that faith, I have belief that then I have peace with God. Have you ever I don't care. I'm not asking if you ever come to church. I'm not asking if you ever come to Christmas Eve service and sing Silent Night and sing it was the most beautiful, nostalgic thing. I'm not asking if you give. I'm not asking if you volunteer to VBS. I'm not asking if you've served in a nursery and changed your diaper. I'm asking you, have you ever trusted Jesus as your Savior? For those of you who would say yes, then this is the next question for you. Are you resting in Jesus as your Savior? Are you resting in Jesus as your Savior? Or are you regularly carrying the pressure of trying to perform because you wrongly think that you have to show your worthiness to be saved? Those are two different things. Trusting in the grace of Jesus as your Savior is different than actually kind of trusting in that but putting pressure on yourself to perform because you've taught yourself or you've believed or somehow you thought, well, if I don't perform, man, i got to show God that I was worthy of being saved and so I'm going to perform to show my worthiness so therefore I'll be saved. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? And if you have trusted Jesus in your Savior, are you resting in Him? That Jesus did pay it all that it is finished, that there is no condemnation, that you have peace with God. Peace with God is part and is a large aspect of what the angels were offering when they were singing on earth, peace is whom uh, God is pleased. But peace on earth, right? We don't have it anymore, but that word peace on earth, it means more than just peace with God. Peace on earth actually means peace on earth. It does. If you read through Isaiah, if you read through the prophecies, if you read through the, what the story is, the story is that God is bringing heaven to earth. God is bringing heaven to earth. And when heaven and earth finally collide, ultimately, there will be peace on earth. And when I mean peace, I mean like peace. No more pain. No more sickness. No more betrayals, no more hurt, no more insecurity, none of it, but peace. But we don't experience that peace right now, right? It's an already not yet. We don't fully experience it because in some of our families, there's chaos. It's not peace. There's wounds, there's hurt. 
There's unforgiveness, there's sickness, there's, unfor- there's anxiety, there's abandonment. Peace with God is available today. Boom, Yahtzee, done deal. Peace on earth, it's an already not yet. And we hear them think, singing those songs and we think, where's the peace? Well, where is that peace? And when is it coming? And I remember hearing a seminary professor at a big uh, influence in my life kind of talking about this and talking about what I'm going to share next and um, borrowing some of the thoughts from him. And there was a guy a long time ago who asked that same question. His name was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And he asked the same question I just asked, where's the peace? His wife of 18 years, right, this is back in the 1800s, he was married to this lady for 18 years. And one evening, she was wearing like a nightgown and walked by the fire, and her nightgown caught fire. And she started to catch on fire. And he tried to save his wife, and he grabbed a blanket or whatever was there, and he threw it on her, but that didn't work. And so then ultimately what this guy did is he threw his own body onto his wife, who he loved dearly, to try to put out the flames, but it wasn't effective. And she died. In the process of that, he got so severely burned that he couldn't shave anymore, and he was hospitalized. He suffered a deep depression navigating through that loss. Then the Civil War began. And he wakes up every morning, and he looks around, and there's people killing each other in a country that was once united. A few years after that, his son takes off. Hops a train to go fight in the Civil War, and he gets severely wounded. His wife's dead. He's got depression. He's carrying wounds. There is no peace in the culture. His son went to go fight against other countrymen and gets severely wounded permanently in the process. And on Christmas Day in 1863, with the Civil War still raging, he's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the Christmas on Christmas Day, and the bells start to ring in a church nearby. And he heard those bells ringing, and he sat down, and he wrote a poem that eventually was going to be put to music, which we now sing today. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. And here's the first line of that. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's cheery. But then this guy whose wife died that he literally watched her burn to death, whose son's wounded in a country that's killing each other, suffering through depression, a few paragraphs later said, but in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And maybe today, some of you, that's your soul. That's your heart. And you're thinking, man, the more I hear about peace, the story of my life mocks the song. But Henry Wadsworth Longfellow didn't stop writing. Because then he writes, right, there is no peace on earth. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Wadsworth was right. There's not peace on earth. There's not. But God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. And the wrong shall fail, and the right will prevail. And I know that. Not because Henry Wadsworth Longfellow puts it in a poem, but I know that because here are the words of God in Revelation. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Doesn't say I've made it new. Doesn't say I will make it. But says, I am today in the process of fixing the wrongs. And I'm not dead. And I'm not asleep. And peace will prevail and it all will be new. Fixed 
redeemed, perfect, not broken anymore. And today, you, if you're a believer, can have absolute rock-solid confidence in that because of what Jesus has already done. Because of what Jesus already done in his first appearance, in his first advent, you can have absolute confidence of what Jesus will do when he comes back again. He came back from the dead, <laughs> and he's going to fix it. So as we look to that day, what I'd invite you to do with me on this day is look back to Jesus's day in his first advent when he began the process of making all things new. This is a cup of hope and confidence to anchor your faith to the future. We anchor our faith to the future because of the past. And so we celebrate what we hear Paul telling us that I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what Jesus did when he first came to this morning. Give you hope of what he will do when he next comes back. Let's take and eat the bread together. this in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and so for all of us who are yearning for peace for all of us who don't fully experience what we one day will we take a sip of juice to remind ourselves that he can do it. He promised to do it. He will do it. Let's take and drink.